So tonight we're going to talk about um, the gospel that Paul preached. First thing I want to do is just to read a little bit from uh, this little book called A Bird's Eye View of Paul, uh, written by Michael Bird, who's a very fine uh, New Testament scholar. Um, uh, and um, this is a, I recommend this book actually. It's, um, it's written you know, for the general reader, shall we say, not, not really academic in, in nature. Um, and in case any of you are a bit worried about me, it's published by IVP. Maybe some of you are now really worried about me. Um, anyway, he's got a, a chapter in the book is called The Royal Announcement. And he says, some gospel presentations go like this. God is holy. Two, man is sinful. Three, the only way sinful man can stand before a holy God is if there is a mediator who stands in our place to remove our sin and is obedient to God in our stead. Four, the gospel declares to us that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law of God and his death has atoned for our sins. Five, therefore, through faith in Jesus, our sins are cancelled and his obedient life is counted as ours so that we can be at peace with the holy God. Anybody heard that? Okay, one or two. No? No? Everybody else? No? Do you recognise that gospel presentation? Um, we were brought up on that, Philip, weren't we? Um, so the, he goes on to say here, the gospel is not, is not an inference made from a deductive argument about God's holiness and human sin. Such an approach, he says, is not so much wrong as it is uh, deficient. Um, so we're going to think a wee bit about that uh, tonight. Now, first of all, I thought we would, uh, we would get you to do a bit of work. So there's approximately four. Okay, so if we get into uh, groups of perhaps half a dozen, um, uh, and we can have a wee look at these questions here, if you can just about see them. So um, I don't want you each group to do... So if you get into your group, um, I don't want each group to do all three, because uh, we don't really have time, uh, but I'll divvy it up between you, so... If you want to organise yourselves. So we've got about four groups, have we? Okay, so uh, let's see. The the group down here on my left at the back, uh, if you could do uh, question one, if you can read that. Can you read that okay? Well, I'll read it out for you in a moment or two. Um, the group at the back, put up your hands if you're on the right-hand side. Okay. Do you want to do number, number two? And group at the front? Or, or is there a group in the middle? Group in the middle? Can you do um, this one? And the group at the front? Uh, i tell you what, you do, do, do the first one as well. Um, and we'll come back uh, together and have a wee uh, chat about this. So group over here who can't uh, read... Um, um, Isaiah 52, 5 to 10. Uh, what, is, what is the essence of the gospel according to Isaiah in this passage? Is the first question. So, I'll give you five, five minutes or so to have a wee chat about those uh, passages. All right, so maybe we'll have a, a we think about these, uh, these passages together here. Um, um, okay, so our, our first passage then, um, 
That was our group down here was, was looking at that one, yeah? So looking at Isaiah's gospel. So do you want to shout out, tell me what, what do you think is important here and what's... Yep. Salvation and rescue are promised for the people in exile. Anything else to go into? Victory. 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 I suppose that could be victory over the situation of being in exile, or it could be victory in general. Ultimate victory. Okay. Cross references or Romans. Okay, should we review the rules? Not the rules? No, just for the chicken bit notes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Romans 2, 24 and Romans 10, 15. Uh, Alright, uh, who's doing this second one then? Put back here? Was it? Yeah, you look looking very sheepish. <laughs> Not like you do. That looks like it. <laughs> um, so, okay, what's actually about the whole description of the gospel? Uh, what seems to be important in what you said here? Yes, it's certainly very brief um, and succinct in terms of um, you've been saved by the gospel if you hold firmly to it. Um, and then he goes on to stress the importance of the resurrection um, and belief in the resurrection as being part of that okay. process. Okay, so um, this is brief in of Jesus Thank you. 
Bible that he read, which was the Greek version of the, um, of the Old Testament. And these three scriptures in Isaiah, I think, serve to illustrate, um, one of which we, we had a wee look at there. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings, lift up your voice. Um, lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. 52 verse 7. We could all sing this one, couldn't we? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says, does Zion, your God reigns. Uh, And then Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, of course, the passage that Jesus quotes in uh, the beginning of Luke's gospel. Now the whole of this section of, uh, of Isaiah uh, from chapters uh, 40 to 66 deal with two major themes. Um, Yahweh, Israel's God, returning to Zion and being enthroned. And secondly, Israel's return from her exile in Babylon. Now, as far as many Jews in Paul's period were concerned, although Israel had technically come back from exile, their land had been occupied by a succession of pagan rulers and was now defiled by the Roman Empire. So there's a real sense of still remaining in exile, and you get this sense if you read other Jewish documents of the uh, period. And the theme of the herald that we, that we just read, those Isaiah uh, passages, 
Um, that was very much alive and well in the first century. We know, uh, again, from uh, other, other uh, do documents which explicitly refer to this herald figure from Isaiah bringing good news of release from captivity and the advent of the rule of Yahweh. So there's an expectation amongst Jews of various groups of a day to come when Isaiah's good news of freedom, forgiveness of sins, a new golden age of Yahweh's peaceful reign on earth would actually come to pass. Now that was expressed in a whole range of different ways by different groups. But there was a broad hope that the God of Israel, God of the world, the God of the covenant, would decisively act once more and bring in what they thought of as the age to come to replace this present age. Jews typically thought in a, uh, of time in a cr chronological sense. There was this age, and then there was the age to come, which was the, the, the age that Yahweh would, would bring in um, when he brought in his kingdom. Now, Daniel was a, a very important text for Jews in the first century. Um, and Daniel spoke to, uh, to Jews um, of, of God as the living God. Yahweh was the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion has no end. And many Jews, that was an important text in the first century. Many Jews saw that as, a, as the need to resist pagan pressure, to compromise their ancestral religion, to hold firm uh, until the day when Yahweh would bring us deliverance and vindication to his people. And uh, Daniel 6 and 7, passages you may be familiar with, speak of the coming of Israel's God, defeat of Israel's enemies, and the exaltation of a human figure, interestingly. And the encouragement here for beleaguered Jews in the first century uh, AD uh, in the, under the Romans was to remain faithful under pressure and to await God's day of intervention and vindication uh, of, of the nation. And there's, you get this in all sorts of other texts, um, from the period, there's one that uh, that you can you can have a glance at, but it gives the same the same sort of idea. And actually, we could we, we could you know have endless quotations from from uh, the literature of the period. Jews in the first century had an expectation of God, their God, entering history in the way that God had done um, when they were slaves in Egypt, in the way that He had done 200 years before in the Maccabean rebellion when they were under. Um, pagan occupation God coming to Zion as Isaiah had foretold God coming to Zion to rescue deliver his people but now in a decisive way that would see Israel vindicated, her enemies put to flight and his blessed reign come to the earth so like other Jews of his day that was Paul's expectation as well Paul expected the good news that was proclaimed by Isaiah. Um, the good news, your God reigns. It was precisely this, that is, at the heart of the good news. Isaiah's good news, Paul's good news. But importantly, of course, Paul sees this good news revolving entirely around the advent, death, and resurrection of Israel's Messiah, as we saw from 1 Corinthians uh, 15. The fact that God had raised Jesus from the dead was proof for Paul of Jesus' vindication by God. It was also the indication that the general resurrection at the end of time had started. 
So that's why Paul, after that, 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 that simple recitation of the gospel, he goes on to resurrection for the rest of that chapter. Um, Jesus is the first fruits. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, the general resurrection has started. And so, therefore, the end of time has come. The new age, the age to come, has actually started for Paul. Um, that, for Paul, meant that the God's new day of salvation, peace and joy, had arrived. And that really was good news. The world was, was, was changing. Something decisive had happened in the world. Um, just to quote our old friend uh, Martin Luther in this point, um, not often I quote, uh, quote Luther um, uh, so in such positive terms, but um, he's uh, very supportive of my point here. Um, the gospel is a story about Christ, God, and David's son. He died and was raised, is established as Lord. This is the gospel in a nutshell, he says. And I assure you, if a person fails to grasp this understanding of the gospel, he or I presume she, will never be able to be illuminated in the scripture, nor will he receive the right foundation. And that, I think, is a very sense that we get when we read Paul's description of the gospel uh, in Romans 1. Um, He talks about the gospel of God, the good news, uh, promised in the holy scriptures. And we've, We've looked at Isaiah tonight. The gospel concerning his son, descended from David according to the flesh, and here we get the royal lineage. lineage. So this is the, the one who is, who is coming in the line of David, who is going to have the everlasting kingdom, um, but was declared by Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, which then leads to the obedience of faith amongst all the, the Gentiles. So the gospel is, at heart, a royal proclamation about the establishment on the throne of Jesus the Messiah as Lord, which calls for, logically calls for, the response of faith and obedience from all people. So obedience is not, you know, faith and obedience are not in, in intention here. It's, they're, they're two, two sides of the one coin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we read it. Um, I'd remind you, brothers and sisters, the good news. I proclaim that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day. The result of all this, then, as he goes down the chapter, is that believers will um, share in Christ's resurrection, which is part of the culmination of God's purpose to bring in his reign uh, in the the cosmos. Uh, Christ the firstfruits, Yes, he's the first of the general resurrection. Then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So the gospel um, is at heart a royal proclamation of God's rightful ownership of the world. God is reclaiming his world, lost through human rebellion. Significantly, this uh, rule is not achieved by force or violence, but by love, sacrificial love, shown in the death of the Messiah, which reconciles the creator to the creation, declares that there's a new way of being human possible, free from the penalty and power of sin, with the promise of a new day of transformation of the whole cosmos. Now, clearly, there's a very important individual element to all of this. 
God's reclaiming of a lost world means reclaiming lost human beings. The effect of human disobedience, the presence of evil in the world, the sharing of human beings in the lost Adamic state is all part of Paul's lengthy treatise in his letter to the Romans. As, of course, is the way in which the coming of the Messiah undoes the sin of Adam and makes possible a sharing in the Messiah and a participation in the new creation. This is all part, however, of God's big, grand purpose of redeeming the world which he has created. So, Paul saw what had just happened in his day in the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah as the good news of the arrival of God's blessed reign, the good news that God had promised through Isaiah, the return of of God to Zion, the salvation and rescue of his people. It was a thoroughly Jewish story. And Paul says in Romans 1.16, it was to the Jews first, in the sense that this was Israel's faithful God fulfilling the covenant that he had made with her. But Paul saw that although the Messiah would come and had come through the Jews, his rule and salvation would be to both Jews and Gentiles. In Romans 11, he makes it clear that the purpose of God was to include Gentiles as well as Israel. Um, And he says in chapter 15 um, that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised. Oops, sorry about that. Christ has become um, a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth truth of God uh, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul saw himself very clearly as as, as, um, uh, as called by God to bring about the obedience of faith in the Gentiles uh, and to proclaim um, the Son of God to the Gentiles. So although the gospel is a thoroughly Jewish story, um, it's Israel's God at work in the world, the gospel was good news for the pagan peoples of Paul's day as well. But Paul's gospel was one that undermined the whole pagan worldview and sought to replace it with a, with, a, with a Jewish worldview, but now one that revolved around the Messiah Jesus. So in many ways, Paul's gospel was a confrontation with the world around. As Steve pointed out this morning, The gospel was a new imagining of the world which contradicted the way in which the world works. And I think that's something that's really worth bearing in mind for us today uh, in all our engagement with the culture around us. The good news about God becoming king and reclaiming his world fundamentally cuts across the way the world is, the way it thinks, the art and culture that it creates, all the vested interests, um, as well as the the apathy and the self-reliance. Now, if you read his letters, Paul's, Paul's confrontation with paganism was, was sharp. Many of the beliefs that were, uh, were around were untrue and unfounded as far as he was concerned. Many of the practices, the ways of life, were dehumanizing and simply wrong. And certain styles of community life were just not how God intended people to function. So I thought it might be illuminating just for a little while to take a look at this confrontation of the gospel with pagan life because actually I think there's much that's relevant to the way the world is in our own day. 
So the first point of um, confrontation is, uh, is about God and creation. Uh, for many pagans uh, in Paul's world, the universe was populated by a large number of divine beings. They oversaw nations, they, uh, different aspects of creation, human activity. Deities were active in the affairs of humankind, but they were often capricious or malevolent. And for many pagans, like the Stoics, everything that exists is either divine or impregnated with the divine. Actually, views that you don't have to go too far today to hear bandied about, which somehow often seem plausible and maybe not that far from Christianity, but it's quite foreign to New Testament Christianity. Others, like the Epicureans, the gods were sort of absentee landlords. They were quite apart from the world. Therefore, life was uncertain. Creation was full of chaos and superstition was rife. For others still, you couldn't be certain about the divine. The best thing was just to keep going the old pagan cultic practices, the sacrifices, the auguries, hoping that it would just serve the whole civic life together. I think actually when you, when you talk about those things, it doesn't take too much of a leap to see some of those outlooks reflected, albeit in different ways, in our sophisticated uh, scientific modern societies. But against all of that, Paul stands with his Jewish creational monotheism, with the news of the one God who is creator, Lord of all, and who is actively involved for good with his creation and with humankind, that would have been fundamentally at odds with almost any pagan's worldview. Uh, in First Thessalonians 1 and 9, Paul can say of the, the ex-pagan believers um, there, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. For Paul, the creation was fundamentally good because the one God had created it, and indeed far from something to fear or worship, it should have borne witness of the creator. As Paul says in Romans 1, ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature has been understood and seen through the things he has made. Romans 8, Paul sets out his vision for the liberation of God's creation, which he says is now in bondage. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Um, Thus the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of of the children of God. I think really we don't have to think very hard nowadays to see the truth of what Paul says in Romans about creation. A creation, a natural environment that has been laid waste by human exploitation. But God's purpose is that his creation will be liberated. This will come at the last, the last day of the eschaton, when God remakes heaven and earth. But don't you think here that Paul's creational theology is more than ever relevant today that perhaps we might begin to think, if we aren't already thinking it, that Christians ought to be at the forefront of environmental concern and action. Not because we think it's divine, but that it belongs to God, its creator, its rightful owner, whose servants we are, and whose task it is to bring it into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So that's the first one. The second point of conflict is, is the cult and religion. Pagan life was shot through with, with uh, observance of religious cults. It really wasn't a matter of, of um, the heart or religious conviction. It was civic, it was superstitious, you propitiated the gods, you turned away the evil eye, you, you participated in society as a good citizen. Sacrifice was everywhere, um, hence the problem you get in First Corinthians 
of Christians divided over the questions of whether you should eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul's take on that is not to allow that there's any power in the local deities. First uh, Corinthians 8 says there's no idol in the world really exists. There's no uh, God but one. Um, indeed, even though there may be so many so, uh, so-called gods in heaven and earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, uh, and so on. So Paul challenges the very existence of pagan gods. He calls his converts to turn away from them, but he's not at all worried about them having any power through meats that have come from temples uh, or whatever. Um, in this world where religious life was tied up with civic and economic life, for pagans to pull back from observing all of that because they had become followers of the Jewish God and his Messiah, it would have made them stick out like a sore thumb from their neighbours. It would have put them in a very uncomfortable position and there would have been real cost in it. All of that, I think, highlights the question of Christian distinctiveness in the world. Paul and the first Christians were prepared to stand against the tide of their society. And remember, these were tiny groups. Uh, It must have taken some level of conviction and guts to be part of those small communities in the cities of the Roman world. We know it was costly for them. Paul talks to the Philippians about those around them who oppose them and seek to frighten them. And, of course, by the early 60s, shortly after Paul writes his letter to the Romans, uh, Nero knew enough about the Christian groups uh, to take action against them. The question is, what is Christian distinctiveness today? To a previous generation of Christians, it was pretty clear. You didn't dance, you didn't drink, go to the pictures, or watch TV on a Sunday. All sorted. Nice and easy. But today, what makes the Christian community distinctive? Maybe there's a clue for us in Paul's words in Romans 14, verse uh, 17. Sorry, it's 17. Kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's not dancing or the cinema. It's justice, it's peace, and joy. Being individuals and a community of people who pursue justice in the world, who believe in peace and not in the power of the violence and the military, and whose life together is a joyous celebration. All of that goes against the tide and declares to the world that we worship a different God, a very different God, from everybody else. Third point of confrontation of Paul's gospel is over the idea of what being human is about. Paul's gospel entailed a whole new concept for pagans of what it meant to be human. You can read in Romans 1 where uh, Paul's view of where the pagan view of uh, worshipping the creator rather than the creator, in other words, idolatry, ends up. It's darkness of the mind, foolishness in thinking, slavery to desires, degrading of bodies, homosexual practice, every kind of wickedness. Uh, The list goes on. He saw paganism as a self-destructive way of life. And instead, he offered the good news of a new creation, a new humanness, which the Messiah himself modeled and which his followers could share. And we read about that in Romans 5, where Paul contrasts the old era of Adam, humanity, 
characterized by sin and death, and the new era of the Messiah, which offers an abundance of grace, justice, and life. You read about it again in Romans 6, where Paul contrasts the old way of life characterized by slavery to sin and inner passion, and the new humanness in Christ, which offers freedom from all of that. And then again in Romans 8, where Paul contrasts the old way of being human, which he now calls the flesh, Romans 8, which cannot please God, with the new humanity in Christ, where the Spirit brings life and peace. In passing, we might notice that this new humanness Paul once thought to be brought by Jewish Torah, the law. But Romans 7 tells us that this is no power at all to deal with the power of sin and that living under Torah only ends in the terrible internal struggle of the second half of the chapter. Paul was convinced that the only thing that could bring about the new humanity was the good news of the Messiah. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, there's new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. We don't have time this evening, um, but Paul has a great deal to say about the state of humanity, the problem of humanity, the way in which the Messiah's death and resurrection brings redemption, reconciliation, um, justification, adoption into God's family. Simply to say at this stage, Paul was convinced that being in Christ, in the Messiah, changed human life completely. There is a new creation. We do not any longer live in the flesh. We have been freed from the slavery to sin. Paul's language about this in Romans 6, freed from sin, slaves to righteousness, is really quite incautious. Romans 8, you're not in the realm of the flesh, you're in the realm of the spirit. Paul believes that something definite and actual has happened and that Christians have been liberated to live in a different way with respect to sin. He actually doesn't let us off the ethical and behavioral hook too easily. And he lifts our expectation of what God can do in us. Indulge me for a moment while I quote one of my favorite blues artists, Reverend Gary Davis. Now, you knew it was bound to come, didn't you? Um, It was just a matter of time. Uh, He wrote a song called Great Change, where where he sings, things I used to do, I don't do them no more. There's been a great change since I've been born. I think we'll come back to this point in a, in a subsequent evening. A uh, final thing I wanted just to uh, talk a little bit about was um, power and empire. So the final challenge of Paul's gospel to the pagan world is the Roman Empire itself. In Romans 1 and Philippians 2, Paul talks of Jesus the Messiah in terms that were often used of the Roman emperor. Now, he's using thoroughly Jewish language uh, in both those passages. But also, as it happens, it's language that his his readers in Rome, at the center of the empire, and in Philippi, a Roman colony, uh, a little Rome, um, would have widely have recognized as being used of the emperor, one who was the Lord, who was the saviour of the world, royalty, ascended to deity, one to whom every knee bows and everyone confesses. Those were, those were terms that were used by the, by the emperors. Paul, the emperor was spoken of in these terms and, trevi- and treated with divine honour and thought of as a son of God. The 
Comparison could not have been lost on the people to whom Paul wrote. The confession Jesus is Lord was a fundamental affront to the cry of the empire, which was Caesar is Lord. And here I think we're back in the territory from the beginning at the essence of the gospel, a royal proclamation that there is a new king. The world is changing, that all must come in obedience and faith to Jesus the Messiah, that the old ways of violence and self-seeking and self-serving must give way to a new way of being human, love, service, compassion. The powers of the world are thus convert, uh, co- uh, confronted by the Lord of all. In him, says Paul, all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus the Messiah is far above all rule and authority and power, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Perhaps it's no wonder that Paul himself met his demise at the hands of the empire. And at various points in the century, other Christians would um, go the same way. And, of course, in subsequent years, centuries, uh, at the hands of various empires. Paul's gospel, which declares a new rulership, a new way of being human, which shows the power of love is much more powerful than violence or oppression could ever be, was and still is a powerful threat to the empire in whatever guise it is found, whether in dictatorships, oppressive regimes, or indeed the seductive wealth, seductiveness of wealth, celebrity and power. So the gospel then was good news for all of humanity. It was a challenge to the way things are in the world. It's essentially a royal proclamation. It's the announcement that God reigns and a call for everyone to acknowledge that. It speaks of the creator God entering human history to put things right once and for all. It speaks of the new possibility of a new humanness, a new way to live, It speaks of freedom from slavery to any oppressive power. It speaks of the certainty of a brand new day in which the world itself will be renewed and put to rights. That, I think, is all I want to say. Um, So perhaps we could just have a prayer. Father, we thank you for the good news that we've been privileged to to hear and to respond to. We thank you um, for making us part of your family. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for your lordship and ownership of this world. We pray you would give us uh, grace to to believe, uh, grace to live as you want us to live, to express the new humanness you've called us to and grace to um, proclaim your lordship in every um, area of our lives and everything that we're involved in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.